What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. And it works everywhere I write. Summarizing a doc only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Welcome to this week's Baseball America College podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is Joe Healy, and we will be joined in a little bit by Ole Miss coach Mike Bianco, who's going to be here to talk about the Rebs. Coming off of a 2021 season that saw them reach Super Regionals and a 2022 season that is going to carry significant expectations as well. So going to dive into all of that with him here in a bit and joe and i are going to round up the latest realignment news because that's all we talk about this fall anymore uh we do our interviews we talk about the latest in realignment that's just where we're at i guess in college athletics but uh some significant news has come out over the last week i would say so we will get into that here on the baseball america college podcast which is presented by rapsodo rapsodo has become the industry standard in player performance data Coaches use Rapsodo data as a measuring stick for player development and evaluation. Rapsodo National Player Database is a free service that allows you to see how you stack up against your peers and provides a pathway to get discovered by scouts. You can check out the Rapsodo National Player Database at rapsodo.com slash national database. All right, Joe, uh, it is the final week of October. Uh, I've been away for the better part of the last week uh, in your home state of Texas. While I was there, a fair amount of stuff I feel like happened around college baseball. So we've got, uh, got, got some stuff to talk about here on the podcast. Uh, we can start, though, I suppose, with Bucky's. Uh, we've talked about it before. I've been there before, but I, I just had my mind refreshed by visiting once. So, Joe, uh, let's, let's just start with uh, America's favorite convenience store. Ooh, been waiting on this segment. <laughs> I had a, I had a buddy, a uh, police officer in a, I will just be vague about it. Police officer uh, in a, an exurb of Houston who, when he first started worked the overnights and he said like the best thing about it was that in his area, his patrol area, there was a Bucky's. And so he would sit his like place where he'd park his squad car was in the Bucky's parking lot. And he'd just go in and get like, you know, whatever the, they call the Slurpees at, at Bucky's and just sit there in the parking lot and eating his snacks and drinking his little Slurpees. And that uh, seems like a pretty ideal situation for, for his, what he was dealing with, just sitting for, you know, hours on end waiting for the possibility of something that, that might happen. So that's, that's gotta be, 
That'd be kind of nice. You, uh, you you were traveling with uh, you, well, you had for, a- for the uninitiated yep. first. Uh-huh. Bucky's is a giant gas station slash convenience store. Like it's effectively a Target with gas pumps. Continue, right. Joe. And gas pumps on gas pumps on gas pumps on <laughs> gas pumps. Like that. That I mean, that's the thing. That, that's the thing about Bucky's is that it's big. Yes, but it's it's big and kind of like the um, you know if you were really to write and and by the way like legitimate to use a phrase, think pieces have been written about what Bucky's means, like capital letters, what Bucky's means. Um, because it's not just that it's a big place. It is. It's also big in the stereotypical way you would expect a Texas institution like Bucky's to be big. Like there are, I mean, quite literally dozens of gas pumps. There is, there are walls of drink. Like if, if there is a beverage, if the beverage is not at Bucky's, it must mean the beverage does not exist because there are just walls and, and door after door after door after door of beverage coolers. Uh, the bathrooms are humongous and famously clean. Um, so it's just kind of this cartoonishly big place in terms of options, but it is fantastic because you can get, you know, barbecue and kolaches and fudge and, you know, a Bucky's beaver onesie and, you know, all, all kinds of different, you know, wrought iron signs for your house. You know, I mean, there's just all kinds of little things you can, you can get there. It's become a destination in and of itself. I have to ask you, you know, you had a, you were with a traveling partner, shall we say, uh, what was the react? And it was your first time, her, her first time. Uh, what was her reaction to the experience? Uh, I mean, so it was my fiance. We don't have to be super. I don't, I don't know how boy we wanted to be about it. <laughs> um, she, uh, she was overwhelmed when, when we walked in because it is an mm-hmm. overwhelming experience. Like it's, it, it's everything Joe said it was. They sell full smokers, they have like massive walls of, of drinks and snacks and yeah, there's literally a beaver onesie. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it, it is, it's big, like basically, you know, like just, just flat out, like whatever, whatever you think about your convenience store, like it's, it's not that. So I, it's not even a convenience store. Like that's a huge disservice to the, to the term, but it is, uh, it's massive. And like, so if you're, if you're driving, if, if you fly into Houston and, and you're, you know, driving up to A&M for a, uh, a, a weekend series or whatever, going to, going between Austin and, and Houston for something, you know, you, you can, uh, or, or anywhere in, in Texas and rapidly expanding throughout the Southeast. Uh, it's, uh, it's a great pit stop. It's not like an everyday stop, I wouldn't think, but it's a great pit stop. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing you and I talked about it offline. It's not, you know, if, if you're someone who lives in the footprint of Wawa or QT, for example, or Sheets, and, and we have a little bit of Sheets here in North Carolina, um, it's not that. There aren't hundreds of them. Um, they, are, they are expanding pretty quickly, but it, it is definitely a destination between cities. Uh, it's not the kind of place where you've got one every five exits, where you just know you can count on there always being one on your route. It's not it's not that it's, it's more of a destination place. So, um, which is kind of its niche, you know, I think it would obviously, the minute they start making Bucky's kind of smaller or more compact uh, to fit more of them into places is probably about the point where you realize that, okay, this is probably actually just, you know, reached its logical conclusion here and it's no longer the thing it, it used to be. So I hope that day never comes. Cause I think it's, it's just a, a fun little bit of, of Texas um, that I, that, you know, I get to go back to, um, Whenever I whenever I'm back there and I miss it, I miss it quite a bit. Um, 
were there any other, I have to ask, were there any other highlights from your, from your Texas trip? I need to leave, live uh, vicariously through you, I think. I mean, lots of tacos. Uh, oh. You know, there was, there was Torchies, there was Tacos A Go Go in Houston. Um, yeah, so th- that, that was, in terms of like integral Texas things, like I would say that was, that was the other like big part of it. Okay. And you had a, you had a big meat sweats barbecue meal in Austin, I understand. Is correct. That correct. Yeah. Okay. You were at a wet, well, you were at a wedding right in Houston. That is yes. Was it a venue downtown or was it? Uh... It was, uh, it was downtown. And so actually the, it, the, the Astros clinched, like they won game six of the ALCS the night I got into Houston and I was staying like, five minutes from Minute Maid or whatever. Uh, so that was kind of an exciting thing to be around all of, uh, all of the commotion. Mm. Yeah. I used to, yeah. I mean, that, that can go, <laughs> the fact that, you know, you kind of knew what was going on and that you obviously your careers in baseball would have been one thing, but I, my previous job, which was based in the St. Louis area, our company conference would typically fall right around this time every year. And it was always a double-edged sword when the Cardinals were in the playoffs because the hotel they would have, the conference that was literally across the street from Bush stadium. And it was kind of nice that there was like this buzz in the air around our conference. Like our customers kind of liked it because it felt like they were, they were right in the middle of something exciting happening. But on the other hand, like woof, did it make like logistics difficult of like trying to find a place to go to dinner or just getting around the street. So um, that, 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 can, that thing can kind of be a double-edged sword when you're not actually there for the, for the event in question. Indeed. The wedding could have been happening while game seven was happening. And mm. I think everyone was glad that uh, it didn't go down that way. Mm, indeed. <laughs> I cannot blame them. Uh, so while all of that was happening and I was traipsing through Texas, um, I mentioned a fair amount of college news happened over the last week. Uh, just touch on some of the highlights here, Joe, and in some cases, lowlights um, before we get to, to Mike Bianco. Uh, we'll leave realignment aside for now, but Reggie Crawford, it actually happened now almost two weeks ago that he left a UConn game with an apparent injury, and it is now clear that that apparent injury is going to cause him to miss the season and I believe require Tommy John surgery. Uh, so that is very bad news for UConn and for Reggie Crawford, and you know we'll see what it means for his draft stock. Uh, I think he'll probably generally pretty much be okay, but at the same time, folks, you know, in the in the scouting world, just haven't had many opportunities to see him pitch because uh, he didn't do a ton of that for UConn. He did more of it for Team USA over the summer, and everyone saw him that needed to see him, but he doesn't really have a starting pitcher track record. So, uh, how teams go about evaluating his status will be interesting. And of course, he's also a two-way player, so. What are you doing with all of that? We'll have plenty of time to evaluate what all of that means over the next eight, nine months, however many months there are until the draft. Oh, wait, the draft. We don't know what it is yet. So we'll, uh, uh, it's like at least nine months away, though, I think. Um, also, we had a couple coaching moves just today as we record this. The 27th Tennessee Tech coach. Steve Smith, former Auburn pitching coach, former Baylor head coach, uh, current Tennessee Tech coach, is resigning to take a job with the Tigers um, as a minor league pitching coordinator. And also in coaching news, William and Mary hired um, 
Mike McRae, formerly the Canisius coach, also formerly the most recently uh, VCU's associate head coach as their new head coach, uh, replacing Brian Murphy, who left uh, for Merrimack sometime this fall, late summer, a few months ago. Uh, So a couple new coaches, Reggie Crawford, uh, and a fair amount of uh, realignment news, like I, like I mentioned, but we'll get to that uh, later in the podcast. So, Joe, um, I don't know if you want to react to any of that here, um, but those were kind of significant headlines around the sport over the last uh, week plus. Yeah, the Crawford news obviously disappointing, especially after seeing him with Team USA and just how electric he could be, at least in short outings. You're right that he still had a lot to prove as a starting pitcher, and we can kind of assume that he was going to get that opportunity at UConn and now he, he won't obviously um, and it's important, you know, it's a double whammy for UConn because, you know, you mentioned it being a two-way player. He's also UConn's best hitter. So that is really a, a, a I don't say a crushing blow. You know, I, I suspect, you know, a Jim Pinder's UConn team is going to find a way still to be competitive, but I think it, it significantly lowers the ceiling for what they can accomplish this, this well, coming season. I, I do wonder about this and I, I haven't gotten word and I don't know if UConn knows this yet, but, you know, sometimes you could come back like position players can come back from Tommy John faster than pitchers. Yeah. Fair. So like, could he come back in DH at some point this season? Like, is that, is that possible? Or because he's a pitcher, does he just have to rest it further to allow that recovery process? Like, I, I don't know the answer to that. And like I said, I don't know if UConn knows the answer to that yet. Um, so, you know, we'll just kind of have to, to wait and see on that. But, yeah, I, I guess at this point we have to assume that he's out for the season. But maybe he might still be able to swing the bat a little bit. But, yeah, it's uh, uh, it's just really tough to lose a player of that stature. Yeah, that'll be an interesting one because there's a lot that goes into that, right? So, like, it's, you know, if UConn is, is just not good next year, which I wouldn't bet on given the history, but if they're just not good next year, maybe it's like, okay, let's just pack it up. If they are pushing for the postseason, then maybe it, it, he's more inclined to give it a go to at least try to DH or pinch it or whatever it is. Then there's the standpoint of, well, also, you know, you're about to go into this draft. You know, do you really want to go out there and push yourself just to, to DH periodically? So, that, I mean, there's just a lot that it seems like that's going to be a very bespoke situation in terms of is he going to, to come back or, or not? So we'll just have to let that play out. On the, on the coaching front, I think, you know, Mike McRae is not a name that, most casual fans are going to know or know why that's a big deal. But I think that's a a low key, really good hire for William and Mary. He has done interesting stuff at VCU as the pitching coach. I think I've talked about it on the podcast before, but they did this really interesting, like piggybacking situation with their pitchers where they were basically throwing their starting pitchers, like four innings at a time, like twice on weekends in, in a couple of cases. And so they had, they didn't really have anybody who was a set starting pitcher with just a few exceptions or a set short reliever. Everybody just kind of had very similar roles. It was, it was kind of a neat deal and it it mostly worked. So, you know, that's, that's kind of an interesting thing there. And also, you know, he's a guy who had a lot of success at Canisius. If you look back at the best Canisius teams, when they were kind of I I don't want to say a sensation, but before Fairfield was doing what it did last year, they were kind of the darling of the Metro Atlantic. They were the team that you looked at and said, oh, it's a team that could cause, cause a, a host trouble in a, in a regional opener, for example. Um, and he drew a lot on, he is Canadian. 
he drew a lot on getting players, and this was Canisius in Buffalo, obviously, you're a lot closer, drawing players over the border from Ontario to Canisius. Um, so, you know, we'll see if he continues to try to draw on that and get him a little bit further south. But, I mean, I think that's a pretty good hire for William & Mary. Obviously, now he has the state of Virginia experience, having been at VCU, but he's been a head coach before. He's been a successful head coach before. It's a really intriguing hire from, from where I sit. So I think that was kind of um, a shrewd move there by William & Mary. And, you know, Steve Smith um, is a guy who probably doesn't really get, because of the way things ended at Baylor where they weren't very good for the most part of his last few years there. I think it's, it's easy to forget how successful he was at Baylor for a long time. A Baylor team, meanwhile, I mean, women's basketball and baseball were doing a lot of heavy lifting for Baylor for a long time when the rest of that athletic department wasn't very good. And now it's hard to believe that now Baylor basketball, men's basketball, just won a national title football. Obviously it had its scandal, but has also been a mostly winning program now for the last decade. Um, so it's easy to maybe not realize that there was a time when baseball, and like I said, women's basketball are doing a lot of heavy lifting and that's due to Steve Smith and Tennessee tech always felt like a strange fit for him. Um, and, you know, I, and I understand as an older coach, it can be tempting to try to like, just get back into a head coaching job. If you're afraid that you might not get that opportunity. And maybe he was hoping that there still was some residual glow around Tennessee tech coming not too long after that super regional appearance under uh, Matt Braga, but obviously didn't quite work out that way. They've, they've not been very good the last couple of years he was there. So, um, you know, probably a good opportunity for him to go back and, and really just be a pitching coach in the Tigers organization. That's pitching has always been his focus and his thing. So maybe just a better fit for him there, because like I said, the Tennessee tech thing always just felt like a, a bit of a square peg in a round hole. Yeah. I, I, um, I think William and Mary did, did a good job with this hire. You know, we'll, we'll see where it goes, but um, Canisius was really good under Mike McRae and VCU has been really good. And, you know, Sean Stifler is great as a head coach. Um, I'm not here to say that the reason why the Rams have been as good as they've been lately is, is because of McRae, but like, he's definitely been a part of it. And I, there's just a lot of winning identity there that is now coming to William and Mary, which has had some pretty good moments over the last decade. Um, you know, we'll, we'll see where they can go from here. Uh, the CAA is not an easy place when you consider that UNC Wilmington and College of Charleston have you know, some real significant weather advantages over most of the rest of the conference. And, you know, that they are what they are facilities-wise, history-wise, and now Northeastern is actually operating at a level that maybe is higher than any other team in the conference under Mike Glavin. Um, so it's not easy to win in the CAA, but, you know, William and Mary has done it before. And, and I think it's a, a challenge that Mike McRae can, uh, can take on and, and we'll see where it goes, but I, it's a, uh, it's a very solid hire, I think for the tribe. All right. So with that news out of the way, um, let's, uh, let's move on to our interview here with Mike Bianco. I feel like we don't need to introduce Ole Miss significant amount, Joe, because we talk so much about Ole Miss here on, on the podcast, you know, anytime, but certainly over the last year. But it, it's an interesting time for Ole Miss as you look back at the 21 season and start looking ahead to 22. There are really high expectations on this team going into 21. They dealt with a lot of adversity in the form of injuries. Gunnar Hogland was 
looking, you know, I mean, he, he was, he was a first round pick. He, he looked like a, an all American and all the rest of that. And ultimately he got hurt. Uh, Doug Nikhazy missed a couple starts, but was the first team all American and, and was a phenomenal ace for the Rebs. Um, they dealt with uh, an injury that to Tim Elko, their best offensive player. We get into that. We'll get into that here in the interview. They never had the services of Jerry and Ely because of an injury with football. Um, you know, we, we, we don't know what kind of college baseball player Jerry and Ely is at this point, but I mean, I'm sure they would have been able to find something for him to do uh, to take advantage of, of his incredible skill set. Uh, and, you know, they, they overcame that to, to reach a super regional, uh, to host a regional at a I remember basically writing Ole Miss off as a potential regional host. And then they went out and they, they upset Vanderbilt and uh, they, they just never, they never quit all season long. And, and they pushed Arizona to three games in that super in, in Tucson before falling and, and Arizona went uh, to the college world series. And now Ole Miss needs to kind of just hit the reset button on the mound because Hoagland and Nikhazy and Taylor Broadway, uh, their all American closer, they're all gone. Uh, to pro ball the offense however returns just about literally everyone and you know so th- there's a whole b- the, most of the sec west is in somewhat of a similar boat a lot of offense back not a lot of pitching back uh, but i i do like what Ole Miss has offensively and, and so they're they're again a very exciting team as as we look to 2022 so a lot of interesting things here to uh to get into with mike bianco which we'll do here in just a second on the Baseball America College podcast. But first, check this out. Today on the Baseball America College podcast, we're excited to be joined by Ole Miss coach Mike Bianco. Ole Miss coming off of another strong season, reaching Super Regionals last year uh, before losing to Arizona. Coach, we're we're happy to have you here and and excited to talk a little bit about last year and look ahead to what should be another exciting season of of Rebs baseball in 2022. Well, thanks for having me. Always enjoy it. Like I mentioned, you had some, it was was a really good season, ends in Super Regionals, some real high highs to the 2021 season, uh, overcame some tough. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I love about using Indeed is how it does a lot of that organizational work for me. I can sort through candidates. I can respond to them. I can schedule interviews all through Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses, including Baseball America, that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Baseball America. 
Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Injuries, Gunnar Hoagland going down, uh, for instance. What, what stands out to you about last spring? Wow. I, I think the biggest thing is... Um, you know, just how proud I was of, you know, how the kids handled all the adversity, you know, and, uh, you know, this, this is a generation that, uh, I think will forever, you know, be remembered of going through the pandemic at, you know, at a, at, at a certain time in their life. And, you know, this is a, you know, most of those guys last year, you know, returned from that 2020 season that got stopped, you know, uh, in mid-March as we all remember and, uh, you know, their life changed. And, uh, you know, continued to work hard and, you know, through, uh, you know, the, the adversity of that and getting through a fall and, you know, uh, a new norm, right? And wearing masks everywhere and being tested, you know, in the fall and, you know, you know a lot of them getting COVID and, you know, recovering and, and, uh, uh, and starting a season that, you know, you weren't sure, you know, what it was going to be like, you know, was it going to be all conference? Was it, you know, what, what was the season going to look like? And, uh, and, you know, the season, you know, we, we all forget, you know, it was a, you know, uh, the season that almost didn't happen, right. The season that conferences were choosing to play conference only games and, you know, what would that look like on our schedule? And thankfully the, the SEC voted to just play it, um, you know, normal, you know, straight up. And, uh, uh, and as we got through that, you know, I think it was less worry about COVID, uh, and more back to baseball, at least at some point when, uh, somewhere in March, I know here in Mississippi that we, uh, we turned to, um, a hundred percent attendance and, you know, that was really neat. And, uh, um, but we were having a really good year and then, you know, adversity strikes as, as it, as it does. And, uh, we, we lose, you know, uh, you know, our pro- arguably best hitter and Tim Elko tears his ACL in early, early April, uh, who had just, you know, a, a few days before that, you know, was, you know, selected as the national hitter of the year for the month of March. As he starts April, he tears his ACL. Looks like he's done for the season. And, you know, a few weeks after that, we lose our ace and Gunnar Hoagland. Uh, and so, you know, that's a long pre, you know, prelim to, I guess, the answer of just the way our guys handle it, you know, from, from the get-go and all the way through the season and to be that close uh, to getting to Omaha and, and making it back to the College World Series, just proud of, you know, how they hung together. You mentioned Elko's injury, and, and that was a big one, obviously. It took him out of a, a full-time role, especially playing the field, things like that. And yet he was still ended up being an effective bat for you guys down the stretch and somebody that teams were still kind of having to game plan around, especially because it kind of freed him up, I think, to maybe just, you know, go up there and take some hacks. You know, uh, he wasn't running out many doubles, if you will. But um, have you ever he seen wasn't running like, out any doubles? <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, have you ever seen anything like that in terms of not just the coming back so quickly from it, but just, you know, the fact that he was still such an effective piece of your lineup, even though he was he was clearly limited? Oh, there, there's no doubt that uh, he was, uh, you know, certainly, you know, limited and, uh, you know, no, the, the, the short answer is no, I've never seen anything like that. And, you know, when he got injured, um, you know, we spoke to a lot of doctors and, and, 
if you go back to that point, um, you know, some of the doctors said that you know, he, he was going to have to wait a, a few weeks anyway for his heel. He had some, like a lot of baseball players do, had, you know, some, some open wounds, scabs and stuff on his knee just from sliding and diving for balls where before they had surgery, they would want that, you know, healed up uh, and for the swelling to go down. And while he was waiting, you know, we could kind of test it and see uh, uh, how he felt, you know, swinging and moving and, you know, uh, got, a, got him fitted for a brace. And to be honest with you, it was probably 50-50 hearing from different orthopedics, you know, across the country of could he do it or not do it. Um, and, uh, you know, he decided to give it a chance or a try. And uh, I think his first at bat uh, was against South Carolina uh, with a few weeks left in the regular season. It was just a pinch hit at bat because at that point we weren't ready to run him out there. Right. You know, we weren't, you know, he certainly couldn't play the field, but did we really want to start a DH that if he got the first base, we you know more than likely have to run for. Uh, but then we got to the last weekend of the season against Georgia and decided to, to if we're ever going to do it, we need to you know go for it. And so we did it at Georgia. It worked you know fine uh, and then used it throughout the SEC tournament. And then he became kind of a, a staple of, you know, of the lineup again. Uh, just where, where does he now stand in terms of recovery and, and everything with uh, with that injury? Well, Teddy, he uh, doing really well. Uh, he he started hitting, I believe it was last week. Maybe it was uh, maybe ten days ago uh, with with a brace on. Um, uh, you know, he had surgery in July, I believe, and uh, so he's he's hitting off a tee with the uh, with the brace still on. Uh, he's starting to get uh, to do some things in the weight room, lower body now. Uh, uh, this is the week that uh, he's been running on a treadmill uh, underwater. Um, and so, you know, now I think the, the end of this week, he'll, he'll move to a, a regular treadmill. So he's moving along and progressing the way, you know, and hitting all the marks, you know, through his rehab protocols that he's supposed to. And, um, you know, knock on wood, uh, should be full go come January. That is, that's fantastic to hear. Yeah. Uh, Jacob Gonzalez also had, you know, some great moments for you stepping right in as a freshman. What, what allowed him to do that? I mean, he comes in, I know he had a great fall last year and he winds up being the starting shortstop as a true freshman, not something you see every day. What, what is it about Jacob Gonzalez that allowed that to happen? Well, I think the easy answer is he's just a tremendous baseball player, but I think what you're really getting at is there's a lot of good baseball players that when they show up to college, they're not great immediately. And, and I, I think, I know, you know, in this office, uh, uh, we wish we knew that answer. We wish we knew what made guys, you know, excel immediately and, and what, you know, kind of delayed other guys from, you know, being great that you, you thought coming in that they would be great players. Uh, but I don't think there was a doubt when Jacob stepped on campus, you know, as we started taking batting practice, they started taking ground balls before we even started the fall. You knew that, you know, he was, you know, an outstanding player. But once we started fall practice, uh, he was one of the leading hitters last fall. And, and, and I think the people we, we love in baseball to talk about offense, uh, but, you know, it's even more impressive the year that he had when you talk about he's playing a, a premium defensive position in shortstop, um, you know, to, to do that and to do it well uh, and then to bat, you know, 
either first, second, or third, basically the whole whole year. Um, uh, what a tremendous year. And again, another piece that, you know, if he, he doesn't have that year, we, we don't, we don't have the year that we had. To spring forward a little bit and start to talk about this team you've got on campus now this fall, moving ahead to the 2022 season, you got just about everybody back from that lineup last year that was already a, a pretty good unit, obviously. Um, is it, is it in the realm of possibility that next year's group could be the, the best lineup you've had at Ole Miss? Yeah, I, I, I think so. Uh, you know, one of the things that we talked about early on in our coaches retreat and, and, uh, you know, the, the challenge, I think for Mike Clement, our hitting coach, um, is, you know, can, can you get better? Can you continue to challenge that group? Because we all know that, you know, offense can be up and down, you know, you can get cold, you can get off to slow starts and, and, um, but you're right. This, we returned just about every piece of, of that offense from last year and, you know, with a couple new additions. And so uh, I think, you know, in your mind, you think we're going to be really good offensively again, but, you know, how do, how do we improve? And one of the things that we, we'd like to, you know, uh, reduce the strikeouts, We've, we thought we, you know, we had a little too much swing and miss, uh, you know, in the lineup last year. And can we be a little, little more, uh, I don't know if athletic is the right word, but uh, to, to, to produce more on the basis, you know, to, uh, we like to be aggressive, uh, but can we steal a few more bases, you know, with guys like McCants and, and Bench and others throughout the lineup, you know, uh, uh, you know, last year, you know, was a team that stole 44 bases. Uh, we hit a lot of homers, you know, we hit, you know, 85 or so home runs, uh, but, you know, some of our better offenses, you know, you know, stole a few more bases and, and it, you know, you don't have to have a, a bunch of five, 10, 185 pound guys to, to steal bases. Um, and, and, and some of that just comes with, you know, maturity and, and, and returning guys that, you know, have confidence that, that will go, will, you know, will go when they're supposed to. So I think that's the, the, the goal is to, you know, to, try to continue to improve offensively. Will it be you know, one of the best offenses we've ever had? Maybe. I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's off to a pretty good start when you look at the personnel. So given that there, you know, there might not be a lot of extra bats just laying around, but that being said, I mean, as early as it is in the fall here for you guys, are there any newcomers or guys who maybe weren't regulars last year, weren't getting a lot of run that have already kind of just based on what you've seen so far, elbowed their way into the conversation or trying to force the issue a little bit? Uh, you know, I think there's always guys like that, but, you know, this year probably, you know, less so than, than most. I mean, I think uh, you look at, you know, Reagan Burford, who I think is, uh, you know, uh, kind of the, the Justin bench mold where he can play just, uh, just about any position in the infield and even run out to the outfield. Um, you know, Kemp Alderman, who, you know, was a freshman that had very limited at bats last year, but just, you know, it's got some, you know, just, crazy power uh you know you'd like to see if you could get that bat uh because it's so dangerous you know in the lineup to you know just have more plate appearances banks tolly is a junior college transfer that i think gives us some depth in in the outfield uh it's got power can run um you know it's a true center fielder tim samay is a shortstop uh that you know we just talked about jacob gonzalez but you know lord knows you you, you need more than one shortstop and a kid that can play you know anywhere in the infield and um and so there, there's guys that i think younger guys that can you know uh, you know continue to improve and um you know find a find a bigger role bigger niche but uh i think you it's 
it's crazy to think that you're, you know, the, the guys that um, the mainstays, the guys that, you know, made their mark last year, guys like Gonzalez and bench and Elko and Graham and Dunhurst. And, you know, those guys, um, you know, aren't going to continue to, to drive the ship. On the other end, on, on the pitching staff, you do have some more holes to fill Taylor Broadway, Doug Nikhazy, Gunnar Hoagland all move into pro ball. How is uh, that pitching staff now starting to shape up for you? You know, we're super talented and uh, love all the guys that, you know, Carl Lafferty, you know, brought in another really good recruiting class, not maybe a, um, you know, the numbers of some of the other guys because of all the players we return, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, but, uh, you know, when, when you, when you look at the staff and we watch it every weekend, we're, we're super talented. It, I think you're, you're always, you know, have a little angst when you don't return that Friday night guy or the guy that's the projected ACE, you know, last, you know, two years, you know, to, to return, you know, the Casey and Hoagland and guys that started as freshmen in the rotation, uh, you know, then they're sophomores, then they're juniors, you know, they're, you know, kind of eases your mind when you say, Hey, at least we got those guys right now. We just got to find a, a number three or maybe some bullpen pieces. Um, but, uh, you know, big transfer and Jack Washburn from Oregon state that's pitched you know, outstanding, uh, since he's been on campus. Uh, of course we returned Derek diamond and drew McDaniel that were weekend starters for us. And I think are ready to take that next step and to, to, to be, you know, that, that number one or number two guy in a rotation. Uh, another guy, uh, is Jack Doherty who was a, a freshman that was actually, we were going to redshirt last year till about mid-season with, you know, some injuries and some things that weren't going well on the mound, pulled the redshirt off him, and he actually pitched, uh, started uh, a regional final here. And uh, a kid with a big-time fastball and uh, certainly, I think, got a shot to, to pitch on the weekend. John Gaddis is a, is a grad transfer from Tech, Texas Corpus Christi, who I think was the Southland Conference Pitcher of the Year, left-hander. Um, and so there, there's enough pieces there. Which one's going to end up pitching on Friday night? We don't know yet. But uh, uh, another one. Uh, I guess, you know, can't leave out as Brandon Johnson, a, a kid that really came on for us last year, you know, out of the bullpen. And I think he's got a shot to, to possibly start as well. I wanted to zero in a little bit on a couple of those guys. You mentioned, um, you know, obviously Drew McDaniel and Derek Diamond. And that's, those are two names, I think, like you said, I mean, guys that we're pretty familiar with, we've seen a decent amount of, and you mentioned them being ready to take the next step. What does that entail for those guys? Um, you know, cause that, that's something that, you know, we say here too, is, you know, taking the next step, but for those guys right. specifically, what is that jump like where it's guys who have had good moments, but now you're going to need them to be somebody who can go out and win you games, maybe on Friday and Saturday in the SEC. No, you, you, you're exactly right. And, and they're very similar in the way they go about their business. You know, we always talk about, you know, what makes you good, what makes you go, you know, uh, and usually you can knock it down to, you know, three categories for a pitcher, you know, especially in college, you know, they're either a big fastball guy, you know, and the, you know, it doesn't mean that they don't throw all speed, but you know, it's the fastball that makes them go. Uh, they got, you know, some, outstanding second pitch, you know, or, 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 or excuse me, a, a breaking ball or curveball or split finger or something uh, that's really their first pitch. 
uh, misspoke, but you know, so they're breaking ball guy, right. Or they're, you know, a three pitch, four pitch mix guy that really moves the ball in and out. Uh, uh, and that's what makes them go. And I think, you know, diamond and, and McDaniel are the third, you know, they're the guys that, you know, have the, you know, the, the total arsenal where they, they both, you know, throw four pitches, they both, uh, and all those pitches are premium, you know, uh, it, maybe they're not the best fastball guys on the team or best breaking balls or best changeups, but they're all premium pitches that they throw and command very well. Uh, and I think for both of those guys to take the next step is can they deliver the pitch at the right time? Cause you know, as if you watched us up close, those guys at times were as good as anybody we had in the rotation. They just weren't consistently that week in and week out like a, a Nikhazy or a Hoagland. And the difference between Hoagland and Nikhazy are those guys, you know, more times than not make that big pitch to get off the field, right? You know, that, you know, strike the guy out or get the big out with a runner at second and third and, you know, two outs and, you know, the crowd, you know, gets to its feet and, you know, they come, you know, yelling off the field. You know, uh, we need more moments out of, you know, uh, Diamond and, and McDaniel, you know, more moments like that, making the big pitch and getting off the field. But stuff-wise, you know, they're, they're terrific. You mentioned, you know, the, the moments that, that get the crowd into it. I think Nikhazy was really good at that. And obviously, you have a great crowd to, to work with there uh, in Oxford. What's that like playing in front of that crowd? Do the beer showers, uh, you know, does that does that ever fade into the background for you at all? Or are you able to take that in even while you're focused on coaching a game? No, you know, sometimes you'll miss it because as, as much as video is great now and you can catch it in all these highlight videos, you know, if you don't look quick, you know, you'll, you'll miss it. But it's 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 a pretty good sight. Uh, the ones you got to really turn your head quick is when the balls hit to left, you watch it go out and then you got to look to right real quick to see the shower. The ones out in the right are kind of majestic because you can see them. And as they're you know not even hitting the ground yet, the, the, the liquid is going up in the air. So, uh, no, that uh, Teddy, that that stuff never gets old. And that's what makes college baseball so cool. You know, uh, you know, the emotion of the game, the, the atmosphere, especially here at Swayze Field and, you know, at, at other places in the Southeastern Conference that, uh, it, that there's there's, you know, not another place like it. And, and, you know, I think it's one of the reasons that, you know, uh, so many people like, you know, this time of the year watching, you know, Major League Baseball. You know, and uh, because they play the, the crowd, they're like, although uh, much more people that the crowd, the crowds are into it. You know, the, the players play with that emotion. You know, it almost looks like a college game, doesn't it? Where you see, the, you know, how every pitch is so important, you know, in these series. Uh, and you can see the emotion of the fans. You can see the emotion of the players that you don't see a lot in July. And uh, and so, uh, you know, it doesn't get old. Believe me, it doesn't get old. You're in a unique position having uh, all of your sons playing college baseball as well. And, um, you know, so I'm curious first how much you you get to kind of see them play and, and keep up with them because, you know, you're pretty busy yourself during the season, as it turns out. Um, and also just what that experience is, is like for you to observe them as dad and not necessarily just from the from a coach's perspective. Well, you know, fortunately, you know, I, I get to see them often 
and uh, you know, on, on television, not in, in person. That you know, that's the negative. Is I rarely get to see. Matter of fact, my my wife, you know, right now is in Baton Rouge, where uh, my son Drew is. It's, it was his birthday yesterday, so she went down there to see him, and so she gets to see him, you know, a few times each of them, you know, a semester. So she does a lot of traveling in the fall and the spring. Uh, but fortunately for me, you know, with uh, you know so many games being streamed. Um, you know, that I'm able to catch them. I'm going to be able to, you know, finish our game. And if their game has already been played, I can, you know, you know, watch it, you know, back on the internet and uh, typical bad sometimes, especially, uh, you know, if it's late, I'll just, you know, fast forward to their bats because I'm more concerned with their bats and if they're winning or losing, just like most dads. Um, but uh, it, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun, you know, and, and my wife and I are, um, you know, uh, very fortunate, you know, that uh, all the kids, you know, have been able to live out their dreams and play college baseball for good programs and good coaches. And um, it's, it's, it's been a neat thing, you know, with, uh, much better than if they were here, you know, uh, we, we get to see them more, but it wouldn't be the same experience for them, you know, playing for dad, you know, to be too many questions like we're getting now, you can imagine they play for other coaches. Can you imagine if they were playing in our program? So we're, we're, we're lucky and fortunate and uh, it's been a fun few years and we got a few more years left. Ole Miss recently has really embraced kind of the two sport athlete, the, the football players also playing baseball as much as anyone in the country. How do you guys go about, you know, finding players that, that you think are capable of doing that? And obviously you've worked with multiple staffs on the football side in terms of recruiting and, um, you know, game planning and, and everything like that. But how, how do you just find the players that you think are capable of, of doing both? Well, you know, that's, that's a pretty broad question. And, and probably the easy answer for you, you know, Teddy, is, is that, you know, it doesn't matter how good of a baseball player they are. Um, usually, you know, football's driving a ship because they're on a football scholarship. So, you know, if they're not good enough to play football here, then, you know, we can still recruit them as a baseball player. But if they want to do both, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a tough deal. They're not going to be able to come here and do both unless, you know, football's all on board with it. So, uh, but the, the other part of you know, being here now for 21 years, uh, and we, we've had we've had guys, you know, over the years, uh, uh, you know, be able to do both. Uh, but now, more recently, with with Plumley and Ely and and Taiwan Malone, that that'll be with us this spring. Um, uh, we're fortunate that you know Lane Kiffin, Coach Kiffin, you know, has embraced it as much as he has. You know, because you know a lot of football coaches will will say, in my experience, uh, you know, will say, um, sure, we'll let them play baseball, but you know, they, they don't really care about baseball. They you know they're recruiting the football player, and if that's going to help them get the football player, then they'll tell them that. Uh, and then the kid gets there and never, you know, never sees the baseball field. You know, these kids, you know, uh, have kind of been able to um, do it like they would in high school. When it's baseball season, they're baseball players. When it's football season, they're football players. Uh, uh, John Rice, our football team practices in the morning. So Plumley comes by a lot of afternoons. He'll hit in the cages. Uh, he won't practice full go with us, but he'll hit live on the field when, you know, uh, they, they had a bye week uh, a few few weeks ago. And, you know, he, he wanted to hit live on the field and got to do that. And, uh, and so a lot of that, I think, is we're fortunate because our football coach allows it to happen where a lot of football coaches won't. 
We will get you out of here with our final question, one we ask all of our guests. Uh, Teddy described it as our most important question. Uh-oh. I will ask the question and then I will filibuster a little bit, Coach Bianco, to give you a chance to, uh, you know, uh, think about it a little bit. But we ask our, our guests to describe their favorite sandwich. And so everybody goes a little different direction. You can describe to us a sandwich you make at home, um, just a, a certain sandwich that you make all the time. You're kind of your go-to. Some people also describe to us a sandwich they get at a local place, you know, something maybe they and their, their coaching staff go and grab periodically, bring it back to the office or, or whatever it is. So you can take that any direction you would like, but please, Mike Bianco, describe to us your favorite sandwich. Wow. Um, probably my favorite sandwich, and, and, and I, I don't get it a ton because I, I, I try to always watch my weight and try to be healthy, uh, you know, as an Italian sub, a good Italian sub. Uh, and when I say that, that's got all the right Italian meats on it, uh, provolone cheese, uh, lettuce, tomato, pickle, onions. Uh, but the biggest thing is uh, on the Italian sub. Now, I'm a, I like mayonnaise, but not on an Italian sub that it's got um, you know, oil and vinegar. And the key is the oregano. You know, if, if you don't mm. you know, put the oregano in, you, you miss really the Italian taste. Uh, but I would say an Italian sub. Uh, I probably eat more turkey sandwiches uh, than, than the Italian subs because I'm trying to be healthy. But any time that I'm trying to cheat or to do something uh, that I'm really going to enjoy, it's, it's usually an Italian sub. I hear you on that one. That is also a favorite. I, I too am mostly a turkey sandwich guy day to day, but yeah, I mean, cause it, it turns out salami and things like that are not great for day to day eating in your, your diet, but I'm with you in the, the oil and vinegar. If I don't have to lean over to make sure I don't get oil and yeah. vinegar all over my shirt, then there's not enough on there. Exactly. It's got to have that lean over factor. So no, you, you're with me. You, you, you got it. And, and probably to be honest with you growing up, um, uh, my mother, that was, she would go grocery shopping on Fridays. So Friday night, we always had Italian subs. Uh, we didn't call them Italian subs because we're Italian, so we just called sub. <laughs> uh, but they, they, that, that's what we ate every Friday night because she, she was fresh from the, from, you know, the delicatessen in the, in the grocery store and getting the fresh meats and, and cheese and, and everything. And uh, she would make a bunch of them. So we'd eat them fresh, but it was always good on the weekend because she would wrap them up and, you know, they would have that oil and vinegar in them and wrap them up and put in a refrigerator. And sometimes the ones left over, you know, that, that kind of the, the, the sub rolls, the real Italian sub rolls would kind of soak up that oil and vinegar. Oh, yeah. uh, sometimes they were better than second day. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. I think I know what I'm having for lunch today. Yeah, I'm ready for that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, coach, that was outstanding. We're, uh, we're very happy to, uh, to get that mouthwatering image as well as the, uh, the info about the 2022 Rebs should be another exciting season in Oxford. Uh, and we're, we're very happy that you were able to, to join us here today on the baseball America college podcast. I appreciate it, guys, and thanks for what you do for college baseball. Appreciate you. Thank you again to Ole Miss coach Mike Bianco for joining us here on the Baseball America College podcast. Uh, Joe, like I said, the Rebs, they're in an interesting spot here, and uh, I was I was very interested in, in hearing what what Mike Bianco had to say about, you know, the the advantages of, of having the whole offense back, but also hearing about, you know, where the pitching staff is in development wise uh, at, at this point of the year. Yeah. It's an interesting situation for Ole Miss because they are in a similar boat, like you said, to, to other teams, but you, you almost think that 
you know, they'd prefer to have the opposite because at least you could kind of counter program some of the rest of the SEC. And, and as it is, I really like what Ole Miss brings back. How could you not on offense? And yet, you know, you look at Arkansas and what they bring back and added to it. You know, Jace Borofin is an immediate superstar. Like that raises their level. Chris Lanzilli, super productive. Michael Turner from Kent State, super productive. LSU might have already had the best offense in the SEC just going into it when you consider, you know, Dylan Cruz, um, Gavin Dugas, and Kate Dowdy, and Trey Morgan. And then they add to it Jacob Berry, arguably the best hitter in college baseball, and then Tyler McManus from Samford. So, I mean, you like what Ole Miss brings to the table, but man, I mean, just those two teams, and we could sit here and probably talk a little bit about three or four others that are going to be pretty doggone good too. Um, and then on the pitching side, there are a lot of teams also in, in the position of really turning over on the mound. You know, you like from Ole Miss's standpoint that the guys they're looking at, McDaniel, uh, Diamond, Doherty, guys who have at least been a little bit in the fire. Um, they're not completely new names, but man, there is – and there are going to be other guys in the mix, I'm sure, as any coach will tell you. They, they don't want to just peg guys right away, unproven guys. But it does seem like those three guys in particular, plus Jack Washburn, plus John Gaddis, they're just really going to need that group to step up in a, in a big, big way. Some subset of that group is going to have to be frontline SEC pitchers in 2022. Ole Miss will be able to win some slugfests in some ugly games, which it seems like they are always – equipped to do and end up in a lot of those types of games on Sundays during the SEC season. But that's ultimately what they're going to have to do if they don't get some of those guys to step up. And it's, it's just going to be really fascinating because um, I think this is a big year for Ole Miss. Um, you know, they're, they, they continue to get into hosting regionals and then get to super regionals. And I know that the fan base is frustrated with a lack of Omaha appearances. Mike Bianco himself, I'm sure is frustrated with lack of Omaha appearances. And it, it just feels like a big year for Ole Miss to show even in a year when they lost a lot of talent, it does feel like a big year where they need to continue to show some forward progress and not take a big step back. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. This is an offense that ranks second in the sec in scoring last year behind only Arkansas. And they weren't very far off of Arkansas. Um, Although much of the sec, like there were like five, six schools that averaged seven runs a game in the sec last year, which is remarkable. Uh, but that I, I like that. I, the, those guys that you touched on on the mound, Gaddis, Washburn, McDaniel, um, a couple other arms, like they're just going to have to be the backbone of the staff probably. And I'm interested to see how the roles shake out there. I feel like it's going to maybe take a little while to, to figure out precise roles. Like they might know who their starters are going in, but just, sorting out everything in the bullpen just because it's so new. Uh, those first few weeks are going to be very interesting. And we talked a lot about their transfers when we were talking about transfer classes and, and just general transfer portal stuff. And um, they grabbed two really good ones in Washburn and Gaddis. Um, so now it's, it's time to see what they can do in Oxford. Uh, but yeah, they, they shouldn't be hurting for runs like that they should be well supported they play good defense behind them you know jacob gonzalez at shortstop is is really strong and you have peyton chatnier at second who's who's very good and i think anyone in the country would be quite happy with throwing to hayden dunhurst behind the plate they've got guys in the outfield to track down balls really well so i mean i i just feel like they they have a lot there for the pitching staff to be successful if they can just kind of go out and do 
the basic things well. Like they, yeah, they lost Nikhazy and they lost Hoagland and they lost Broadway. And those three guys are really difficult to replace. If Hoagland stays healthy, the three of them probably were all going to be all Americans uh, as it was two of them were. And, you know, that might be a little daunting to say like, well, okay, we have to step in and, and replace those guys. But if you just look around, you have an offense that's scoring you seven runs a game and a defense that, you know, is, is a really sound group. You know, you don't need your pitching staff to carry you. So they just need to kind of find some guys that, that can fill the roles and, and do, uh, do a basic job, not carry the entire weekend. Yeah, it's a good, I mean, it's a good point. I mean, you, you kind of just have to win the games that are presented to you. I think we've talked about that with, well, actually with Ole Miss in the past, or maybe it was Mississippi State, but those two teams I think were similar for a lot of the year last year in that they were just kind of winning the games that were presented to them a little bit and trying to find ways to win each individual game as opposed to having too much of a formula. Um, you know, I think the other thing about this team that I think might give them a little bit of a leg up uh, you know, we, when we're talking about on the margins or splitting hairs between teams in a, in a tough SEC. And that's that, you know, the guys they bring back on offense, like sure, they do have some juice and some guys who are, who are prospecty, you know, when you talk about a, you know, a Jacob Gonzalez in particular. However, they do have older guys who kind of just bring a lot of institutional memory to, to the table. And I think that can be important when you talk about guys like, I mean, Elko is, is chief among them. And it just so happens like, he'll, you know, if he's healthy and then swinging the bat like he was last year he's going to be one of the most productive power bats in the sec, but you know, Kevin Graham uh, is an example of a guy like that. Justin bench is a guy like that. Um, and those, those guys, the- all three of those guys you just mentioned are versatile. They can do multiple things. Like Elko has played like four different positions in his career. I feel like, and you know, we'll see what he can do post injury, but like uh, you know, bench and Graham move all over the diamond. They had to do that to, you know, fill in after Elko got hurt last year. And, and I, I think that is a, a real help when you have older guys that can do that. Nobody gets hit by a pitch like Justin bench either. That guy has done something to really make pitchers mad. Cause my goodness, <laughs> that, it doesn't even seem possible to hit by pitch numbers. We've talked about it before, but it's worth marveling at again, like 29 hit by pitches, just absolutely incredible. I mean, that's, that's like, that's more than most of the team had walks. Just insane. Anyway, um, so yeah, I mean, I think, and I think that's kind of important. That can be like a little bit of a, a differentiating factor. I think it's not just that they've got a really stacked team of, you know, sophomores and, and rising juniors. It's, you know, they've got some seniors and some super seniors and, you know, guys who are just really productive college players. And I think when you are trying to split hairs in situations like that, having guys to your point who are versatile, having guys who are really just there because they want to win games at Ole Miss, not to say guys who are prospects don't want to win games. It's not the point I'm making, but guys who are singularly motivated by that. They know this is their, you know, probably the last baseball they're going to play. They might get a cup of coffee and in pro baseball, but they're here to play and win games for Ole Miss. Like I, I think those types of guys in a program can make a difference on the margin. Ultimately, I think that's kind of where Ole Miss is going to be because while again, we do like the offense, we do like some of the guys coming back on the mound, that does not automatically make them just by default any better than some of these other teams we're talking about in the SEC. Um, that, and that's just life in the toughest conference in college baseball. Absolutely. Yeah. So it, I'll be very interested to see how all of this unfolds. But I, again, at a baseline, you have to like what Ole Miss has uh, coming back, coming in, all the rest of it. So going to be very uh very intrigued to see how the, the sec west shakes out this year and i have no doubt that that Ole miss is going to be at the heart of it all uh before we move on to realignment joe i feel like 
Mike Bianco was the first to say uh, Italian sub as his favorite sandwich. We need to like go back and create a list of all of this. But I think he was the first one to say it. And uh, I was I was happy that we had an opportunity to take a bite out of uh, out of the Italian sub and and really dig into what makes a good one and, and what makes a bad one. Indeed, it was a good answer. I, you know, I, one thing I, I actually really low key love about this, that that question we ask people is how often coaches say, well, I'm probably pretty boring, but I'll say peanut butter and jelly or I'm probably pretty boring, but I'll go turkey or whatever, which is kind of funny because you know, I guess maybe it, it is boring, but also when it's the most common answer, like they all say it like, though, I'm probably going to be the only one who says this. Um, <laughs> but we, most of our answers have been something like that. And I think that's probably just reflective of the fact that most of the general population probably is, is kind of that, that same way. It, most people are not thinking about sandwiches as often or as, as, as in such a unique way that the you and I do, where we think about sandwiches quite a bit. But so I did appreciate getting the Italian sandwich answer. I did have not not the evening that we recorded the interview, but within a couple of days, I actually did go to a place here and get an Italian sandwich. It was very good. It did not have as much, it wasn't as seasoned as well as I would have liked. Um, that was my nitpick. It also maybe could have used a little more of the, the oil and vinegar on it. Um, there wasn't enough kind of soaked up into the bread, I felt like. Um, so, you know, there were some opportunities for improvement, um, but it was very good. And I feel like I, I owe that to Mike Bianco that, uh, you know, I went and got an Italian Italian sub in his name after hearing it on the podcast because man did he did he make it sound good in that moment well hopefully some other folks uh can follow in that stead because it's uh it's a really solid sandwich ultimately and so yeah like I said glad we uh we had a chance to take a bite out of it uh here on on the podcast all right so where we stand on realignment I I honestly don't remember what's happened when Joe so we're going we're gonna to kind of take it from the start here. So this all started when Texas and Oklahoma jumped from the Big 12 to the SEC. That set off a chain reaction that we are still hearing reverberations from and has, has had a lot of, of knock-on effects. The Big 12, I know we've talked about this, expanded or expanded with bringing in BYU, Cincinnati, Houston, and UCF. Uh, so those four teams will join the Big 12 within the next couple of years. Three of those teams are coming from the American. So the American had to backfill and the American went big and they grabbed six teams from Conference USA, uh, five of which play baseball. And I believe we talked about that on the last episode. So now that led to some significant instability in Conference USA that has led to Southern Miss leaving for the Sun Belt. Old Dominion today, I guess, has been accepted into the Sun Belt as well. They would be coming, will be coming from the C or from, from Conference USA. So two more Conference USA teams leaving that league. There is a lot of smoke about Marshall leaving Conference USA for the Sun Belt that has not been announced yet. And James Madison also has been heavily discussed. They would be coming from the CAA. Um, that leaves Conference USA basically as a shell of itself. I think that would leave either four or five baseball playing teams in Conference USA. Either way, that's not enough for an auto bid. Um, they got bigger problems than baseball auto bids, though, because all of their best schools basically 
uh, or, or several of their biggest brands have left the league either to go to the American or now to the Sun Belt. Um, so you've got a handful of schools looking around, <laughs> probably Conference USA, like what's going to happen now. Uh, but from a baseball perspective, obviously that's not good for Conference USA, a conference that we talked a lot about over the last year about how good they were getting at baseball and how great it was that they had four teams in the tournament and could they do this more often and all the rest of that. And now that's all gone. Um, what we're the, the, what we're left with though, in the Sun Belt is a pretty intriguing baseball league ever since coastal left to left the big South to join the Sun Belt ahead of the 2017 season. You know, we were expecting pretty big things out of Sunbelt baseball, and it just hasn't materialized. Coastal hadn't been able to really repeat uh, its its success, although, it, you know, it's hosted a regional in there. It just hasn't been quite at the level of national championship team, obviously. Um, not that that would – it's not fair to accept expect that, but, you know, uh, Louisiana Lafayette took a bit of a step back in that same time, and – some of the other teams just haven't been able to find the consistency. But when you look at a league that now includes Coastal, Southern Miss, ODU coming off of everything they did this year, um, you know, Louisiana Lafayette, Texas State has a lot of potential. Um, Troy has been really good at times. Georgia State, Georgia Southern have, have been really good at times. I mean, that, that has real, real, real potential as a baseball league. Yeah, no doubt about it. It's funny that we've ended up in this place where this is now, you know, another instance of the Sun Belt kind of outmaneuvering Conference USA. And, and let's acknowledge first that so much of this, whether these conferences, if, if the moves end up looking like good moves or bad moves in hindsight, has a lot to do with things that are just out of almost everyone's control. There's just a, some bad luck and some good, there's just some luck involved in it. And things go one way or the other. And that's how we end up judging these things. And that's life. But it does appear that the Sun Belt has kind of outmaneuvered CUSA again, uh, you know, in, in, in football, um, you know, they end up with, you know, schools like Georgia Southern and Appalachian State have been big um, positives in that league. Um, at the same time, when Conference USA was just kind of grabbing at a bunch of different programs, trying to keep its numbers up in the league, and they were grabbing at schools in bigger markets and stuff like that. And that just seems like it's there have been some successes along the way. I mean, it seems like, you know, on their way out the door, UTSA has kind of hit as a thing, um, at least in, in football. So there have been some successes here and there, but um, generally speaking, um, it just seems like this last time around for Conference USA has just really, um, and now we're seeing the, 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 the upshot of it, which is that it, it's falling apart as these schools have found better options. And I, I think that, um, from a baseball standpoint, Sunbelt isn't a really good position. I think it's probably, you know, even though I like some of the stuff that the American brought on, obviously the American is still keeping East Carolina and that that's a positive there, but you know, a, a program on the up in Charlotte, consistent program in FAU, a program in rice that has a lot of history. And I think we all believe there's some latent potential there with rice because of that history, among other things, you know, UTSA, I think we, we like Patrick Hallmark as a coach. There are some challenges they have, but that's a program with some potential. And then, and then UAB, which, you know, remains to be seen. We like the, the Casey Dunn higher there, but there's a, a lot of a lot to prove there with UAB. Um, so I think the American and Sunbelt, there's a chance where I think we maybe thought the Sunbelt 
to your point, could go neck and neck with the American in terms of putting teams in the postseason, in terms of all the metrics we use to compare conference strength, and it hasn't happened. And now I think, you know, kind of by by CUSA getting pilfered, it has bypassed CUSA now. And I think there could be an eventuality where it's where it's in the mix uh, with, with the American, given the American is probably a little weaker, and now obviously the Sun Belt a little bit stronger. So I think a a, a, a pro baseball move for the Sun Belt um, to, to make the moves they did. Yeah, I, that's a very interesting thing that, you know, I kind of need to see everything side by side when, when it happens, like who's got what. But, you know, you look at it, the American has East Carolina, and we all, it's obvious what East Carolina is right now. Uh, but the Sun Belt counters that with a, a program like Coastal Carolina, and, you know, we know what they are. And, you know, the, the Sun Belt has Southern Miss and old dominion and you know i i I think that they're they're, those two conferences are going to end up being closer you know unless all of the good things that the american schools have been doing if if they all hit their potential i think the american has a higher ceiling but you know rice has to get back to being rice and it's been a while since rice has been rice and you know it, can UAB find that next year? Can UTSA and Charlotte build on what they they already have been doing? Can they build on that further? And I mean, there are just questions uh, when you look at the American. Um, there's a lot of upside, but I, I also see a fair amount of questions. Whereas, you know, I know what Southern Miss is. I know what Coastal is. And I don't have any doubt about them being able to continue to do what they've done. Um you know, Southern Miss has been doing this for an awful long time under Scott Barry, and um, you know, Coastal has the trophy to to prove what what they can get done there. So, I I, I think those two leagues are, yeah, probably closer than uh, than we ever would have thought they would be. You know, a few just a few months ago. And of course, the other thing here is that, um, you know, it, it looks for all intents and purposes that Comfort USA is, I mean it feels like there are several steps to be made between us to, between now and us declaring the conference dead, because I have a lot of questions just about, I mean, we, you and I have not lived through, you know, whack football died, for example, but the whack still existed as a thing. And now like, Oh, by the way, here comes the whack resurgent again. Um, interestingly enough, but you and I have not lived through a conference just dying. And, you know, conference USA, as a matter of fact, came through a conference, not so much dying, but like the, Great Midwest Conference and the Metro Conference. I was not raised on the Metro Conference. They merged and essentially became Conference USA. And then it also became a landing spot for a school like Houston, which, look it up, kids, got pushed, you know, pushed out of the eventual Big 12 for largely political reasons. Interesting little bit of history there. That ended up being a landing spot for them. So I have a lot of like specific procedural questions about this. Like when conferences, if it were to just go defunct, like, does it continue to stage competitions just until everyone else leaves? Does it pack up like the circus and skip town? Uh, how long do they wait this out? Like how many no's do they have to get in terms of trying to add schools before they decide to give it up? Because the thing about it is some of the schools that have been have been bandied about here, including my alma mater, Sam Houston State, they're in a position where, you know, if, if you believe some of the reporting, our, our friend Matt Brown, former guest on the podcast, has talked about where the WAC has their eye on being an FBS conference again soon. If you're Sam Houston or SFA or Lamar or whoever else in the WAC or, or A-Sun, for example, which is in a similar boat as the WAC, uh, 
are you going to go to CUSA, the most clearly the most unstable conference in FBS, if your conference, whether it's the Center WAC, is telling you, well, we're going to be there in three or four years, um, and they have stable membership, at least it appears. Um, that's going to be a tough decision. Um, but so it, it, it strikes me the types of schools that we've heard talked about for CUSA are not the types of schools that are definite, like definitely going to jump at that chance. And oh, by the way, one of them was JMU, which is now off to the Sun Belt. And I don't think that's great news for, for CUSA. And so if this is it for CUSA, and obviously not right this minute, because oh, by the way, I think CUSA is going to be really good in baseball again in 2022. All those teams that were good last year should be good again. Um, it's kind of funny that on the way out, CUSA might have this last hurrah as a baseball conference, but um, it, it, it died as it lived. I mean, CUSA is a conference that for its entire existence has existed for programs and teams and schools that did not have better options. At no point in CUSA's existence was it operating from a position of strength. Like if you go to the Wikipedia page of Conference USA, and you can do this with every conference, but it's particularly wild with Conference USA, look at the membership timeline of CUSA. It is all over the place. And it dabbled a lot in schools being in Conference USA in one sport or another and not this sport. And it existed as a landing place for schools that didn't have better options. And that sounds crass, but I think that's just the reality of it. And like I said, they died as they lived because what happened here is a bunch of schools they grabbed in the last round of realignment that always felt like weird fits and kind of helped CUSA get surpassed by the Sun Belt, which had a much stronger in the MAC, by the way, they, they, who hasn't expanded, but that, that's the point. Those two conferences really had a better feeling of self. They knew who they were as a league. CUSA didn't really have a, a core principle that it was kind of rallying around or any sort of like geographic uh, tie that was bringing these teams together. And so the minute that some of these schools that were brought together as they were just trying to grab at whatever schools they could to keep their numbers high, the minute those schools had better options, they left because that's the way Conference USA has always worked. And after a period of time, it kind of just appears that the jig is up a little bit because I'm not sure, to the previous point, I'm not sure where they go here to find schools that are going to be like, yeah, we'll, we'll sign up for that um, because it just doesn't feel like CUSA is, is going to be long for this world in that way. And I don't know why you'd, why you'd uh, volunteer to be involved with that right now. Yeah, I mean, I think that if they just have the goal of continuing as a conference which i mean they may well have like they might have a path to create a football conference if you took umass as a football only menu member now i don't know why umass would bring all of their sports and that doesn't solve many other cusa problems but if if the goal is just having a football league bringing umass like new mexico state is still floating around as an independent liberty is an independent like you can create a football league there, but I don't know why any of those football independents are, would park the rest of their programs in that league. I mean, maybe Liberty would. It makes sense geographically uh, as much as the A Sun does, but I mean, it, it's uh, it, it's kind of a mess for from that standpoint. And from a baseball standpoint, I just feel really bad for Louisiana Tech right now, um, for whatever reason. The Sun Belt's not interested. I imagine it's political, uh, given Louisiana Monroe and Louisiana Lafayette being in that league already. Uh, and I know that that has been contentious, just which just between those Louisiana schools, which one's in the better league and all the rest of that. Um, that would really be unfortunate if that's what's keeping them out of that league or whatever. But 
Um, you know, just having seen what Louisiana Tech has been able to do from a baseball standpoint over the last five years and now looking around and saying, well, five years from now, where is La Tech going to be playing its baseball games? Uh, I mean, that's that's tough. And I mean, if these school, if CUSA does, in fact, collapse completely and the remaining schools, La Tech, FIU, Middle Tennessee State, uh, Western Kentucky, I think I'm missing one. Uh, if they scatter, you know, I guess LaTeX ends up in the Missouri Valley or the Southland or whatever. And I mean, I'm sure they'll figure it out. They've been in the whack before. Maybe they can be in the whack again. Uh, but it's uh, it, it, it's it's going to be unfortunate because they they really had been able to build something there in Conference USA. Yeah, no, no doubt. I mean, it it does kind of it is kind of a disappointing. Um, outcome for them, especially with how resurgent they've been. Although I guess you'd, you'd rather it happen in this order versus the reverse order where you, they, they weren't able to have this big moment before they got moved to their conference where maybe that's not quite as possible to have that, that kind of moment. So if you're, if you're LaTeX, you just have to kind of hope you get put into a conference and you can become the, well, in a previous iteration of the WAC, you become the rice of that conference or you become Gonzaga basketball. Wait, wait, rice was the rice of the WAC. Well, that's what I'm saying. It's like (laughs) they would become Oh, that yes. version of, you know, yes, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. or Gonzaga basketball in the WCC, where it's just like, you're clearly the, the class of that league. Because I think if you're not going to be in a league, that's going to help prop you up. You want to be dominant in the league you're in, because I think there is some value in being that because, you know, I, I think back to it, maybe the better example is Oral Roberts in the summit league, um, you know, 10 years ago, where I think there was big value for Oral Roberts and being able to say, look, you know, you can, you can go to some of these other schools in Oklahoma or Texas or whatever, or you can come here and I can basically guarantee you we're going to run shop in the Summit League or the MidCon, as it was called before that. And then we're going to go to a regional and we're going to upset the host and we're going to get to a regional final. And one day we're going to get to Omaha. And I, that was pretty compelling. So, I mean, there, there is an opportunity to be that in some other league. So all is not lost, but certainly you'd prefer to be in just a super competitive league that can help prop you up. And unfortunately, it seems like LaTeX has just been left out in the cold on that one. Yeah. And I mean, they're the most significant baseball program right now that, that's left in Conference USA. Uh, but I mean, I, I don't have any good answer for what most of the rest of those teams are going to do um, if they aren't able to salvage a football conference or even if they are able to salvage a football only conference and they decide that they all have to park their other teams somewhere else. Like, FIU and the ASUN, like, I don't, I don't know. It, it, it just, th- things are, things are going to get weird and uh, just a lot of uncertainty for in, in the fallout of what started with Texas and Oklahoma moving to the SEC. It's amazing. I'd heard from, from people who would know, like, this is not some sort of like insider information. I'd heard it on podcasts or heard it on where a lot of people said, you know, conference realignment this time might actually come from the bottom up. And like, if you buy, like other than Texas and Oklahoma, they actually did start this off, but you see with how just the volume of movement we've had at this level, that that was happening. It just kind of, it turns out it just kind of needed someone at the top to like start shaking the tree loose a little bit. And this is how we, we ended up with that. And, you know, I hate to use the phrase deck chairs in the Titanic, because I think we, we throw that phrase around and like a lot of people died at the Titanic massacre. So I like, or not massive, but uh, incident because, uh, you know, so I, I don't want to throw something that dramatic on it, but you know, the, the thing about this is, is again, 
from people like Matt Brown, you know, who are really involved in this kind of reporting, they all seem to believe in this eventuality in, I don't know, 10, 15 years, I would say medium term, that we are heading towards another split of division one of FBS football. You may remember if you're old enough that, you know, there was at one time where division one in football was a lot more sprawling. And then they split off into what was then known as one A and one double A it's now known as FBS and FCS. There is a feeling that typified by Texas and OU running for safe Harbor in the sec, that there is a time coming when FBS will split again. Um, so whether you're in conference USA or whether you're in the big sky or the Missouri Valley Football Conference, or what have you, probably is immaterial, ultimately, <laughs> if you're looking at it 10 to 15 years down the road, and we know that football drives these things. So while we talk about from a baseball standpoint, obviously, that's one thing to think about when you start to think about where some of these teams end up getting housed, is that ultimately, you know, what's driving this is football, and some teams might be inclined to make or not make a move based on the fact that it might not necessarily matter which, as we call them now, group of five conference you're in, ultimately in, in 10 to 15 years when all this stuff shakes out again. Yeah. A lot, a lot to consider for the folks that are making these decisions and um, you know, we'll keep, uh, we'll keep tracking this um, you know, what conference USA does from here uh, will be, will be interesting and you know, it further shakedown probably continues from here. Uh, but we'll, uh, we'll, we'll just have to see where it goes in the meantime. Um, I think we're going to be talking a lot more about the Sun Belt going forward uh once that league begins kind of its new uh new, new look which is not going to happen for another couple of baseball seasons uh we're probably looking at the 2024 season for most of this stuff to uh to take effect but uh we'll, we'll see where where it all goes from there that's going to do it for us today here on the baseball america college podcast you can follow us on twitter I'm at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. And you can find the podcast on any of your favorite podcasting platforms, be that Apple podcast, Stitcher, Spotify. Uh, you, you can follow, subscribe, whatever, whatever the nomenclature is there on your favorite podcasting app. Uh, you can find us there. So if you're not subscribed to the Baseball America podcast, uh, we would greatly appreciate you doing so. We will continue coming at you once a week throughout the off season. Uh, with our our interview guests and uh, again like I said realignment that's <laughs> that's what we have to offer you uh, this offseason interview guests and realignment talks so uh, make sure to uh, look for us next week here uh, with, with a new guest on the on the podcast until then there's plenty to read over on the website and if you're into the MLB playoffs there is also a daily podcast that that we do coming at you in the same same stream you don't you don't have to go anywhere else all here on the baseball america podcast feed you can listen to uh kyle glazer and jj cooper talk about the mlb postseason on a pretty much daily basis as long as the world series uh continues to run so if you're interested you can find that here as well i want to thank mike bianco for joining us again on the Baseball America College podcast presented by Rap Soto. Thank you all for listening. For Joe, I'm Teddy. We'll talk to you next time.